Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Amadea, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And we're joined, of course, by two esteemed scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community and regular panelists on Faith Matters. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. In terms of a brief introduction, of course, to my immediate right is Molana Azhar Hanif Sahib, who is a senior missionary in the U.S. and also the vice president of the Amdiya Muslim community. Welcome, sir. Always a pleasure to welcome you across from the state. And to his right, of course, is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who is president of the Qazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence here in the United Kingdom. Assalamu alaikum, Naksab. Welcome to Faith Matters. Gentlemen, we're going to go to North America for our first question, which comes from Vakar Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Vakar Sahib. Thank you for your question. He's uh, talking of the procedure of circumcision within Islam. And he writes that if it's a specific commandment from God Almighty, firstly, shouldn't it actually be mentioned in the Holy Quran? And linked to that, if we say that Allah, and as Muslims believe, Allah is all-knowing, Allah protects, why make a child of such a young age go through such pain as soon as almost he is born? Um, why does not Allah create us circumcised? Uh, Azhar Saab, if I could start with you. First of all, this notion that, well, it's not in the Holy Quran, so is it a necessity within Islam? The idea that everything which we are to do as Muslims is found specifically, directly couched in words in the Quran, is actually incorrect. Because the Quran has left out an entire body of practice which we all Muslims are going to do. And there's no issue that we are not following an injunction of the Holy Quran. For instance, most of the rites of pilgrimage that we practice, there's no mention other than the fact you should go on pil pilgrimage in the Quran. Most of the, the postures and things we say and do in prayer are not mentioned specifically in Quran, yet we will do those things. The style of, of collecting the funds and distributing the funds for zakat, it's not specifically mentioned in Quran other than general categories of those who should give. All of this body, so to speak, of Islam is found not just in Quran, but in another important area which we tend to lose sight of, and it's called the Sunnah. Mm -hmm. Sunnah is not just a history of the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu It's the illustration of the commands of Allah Subhanahu Wa as he put into practice in the daily life. So you would see the model of practicing the Holy Quran and the subtle nuances and the slight uh, variations on daily life mm -hmm. which comes into being in this. And in this specific area, the companions knew that his life was an illustration of the commandment itself in Quran. So there's a basic command in Quran that tells us we should follow him and his practice. And this is found in Surah Al-Hasha, mm -hmm. verse number eight, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse says that uh, 
الرسول, and whatever the messenger gives you, فَخُذُوهُ You should take it. وَمَا نَحَاقُمْ فَانْتَحُوهُ And whatever he has forbidden you from that, abstain from it. This is the basic command that when the messenger has <coughs> shown us or asked us to do something, we follow it. This is called the sunnah. And thus within this command we see his practice takes on a whole body of Islamic uh, precedents in our lives. And there should be no question that we are not following the Quran. This is following the Quran, in fact. And this is the reason why. Allah, obey Allah, wa Rasul. Again, the same message there, obey Allah and obey the messenger. How do we obey the messenger? We know obedience to Allah would be following the injunctions of Quran. Obedience to the messenger would be following his practice of these injunctions as he will show us those various ways of doing it in our daily life. And, and thus, in his practice, he himself was circumcised. And he himself said that one should practice circumcision as a way. It's not only because it was a tradition of the Arabs following on the line of the family of Hazrat Ibrahim Abraham's son, Isaac, was linked to the circumcision as the Jewish line. Mm -hmm. But Ismail, his other son, also was circumcised first. When the command came in the Bible to circumcise, on that day it says that Hazrat Ibrahim, son, Prophet Abraham, circumcised himself and his 13-year-old son Ishmael and all the men in the house. And that practice continued amongst the Arabs as, as a tradition following along the, the, the line of Abraham. Not so much as a religious injunction linked to the covenant because we know that covenant was considered first and foremost amongst the, Isra the Israelites and then later shifted to the Arab Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites. Mm -hmm. But what the Prophet spoke about, more interesting, was not so much the covenant, but the cleanliness that, that's involved. Mm -hmm. He called it fitra. Mm -hmm. The fitra here is natural hygiene, natural hi uh, cleanliness, which he emphasized is the reason why you should circumcise. And so this again was his ways. This is what he, he uh, enjoined upon all the men of his time and thereafter. He said there are five things of the fitra. So if you say then circumcision is not there, then the other four things we should also say, well, they're not in the Quran, so we shouldn't do them. What are the other four things? He said to cut your fingernails. Mm -hmm. So no Muslim should, should cut his fingernails because it's not in the Holy Quran. He said also to trim your mustaches. No Muslim should trim his mustache because I have, I've never read that in the Holy Quran. He said also you should cleanse the, 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 the pubic hairs mm -hmm. because this is a, an idea of gen fitra. But again, that is nowhere mentioned in the Holy Quran, so we shouldn't do it. And these are the things where we see that, uh, again, the, the armpit hairs. You know, this is natural cleanliness, which is, a, which is a very refined system the Holy Prophet showed us by his practice as a way of fitra. And that fitra, which he said in the natural hygiene and way and order, which every Muslim should follow, has no bearing from a verse of Quran, but it has a great bearing on his practice. So we feel, we feel comfortable comfortable and confident that we are following the correct teachings by looking, excuse me, at what he did in terms of, uh, of implementing the, the injunction to the Holy Quran. Um, Dr. Zaid, just picking up on that, I mean, obviously, as the subs already touched on the cleanliness mm -hmm. element uh, of this practice, and it's something, you know, in modern science as well, and in modern practice, more and more we see certain ways being adopted. Uh, in the way which are reflective of those Islamic practices. But also, uh, you know, in the question, Vakar Sabz also said, well, why wasn't it done within the womb, so to speak? So if the male 
the, the boy that is going to be born. Um, why shouldn't, if this is one of those practices, and it, it is any parent who's been through that with mm -hmm. their son, or indeed those, you know, at that time, and here we live in a very advanced state, it's quite a challenge and a test for any parent to actually, you know, subject what is an infant child, a very vulnerable child, to what is perceived by some as being unnecessary pain. Absolutely. I mean, it's easily uh, recognized and established, as, as Asab has said, and you said that this is part of cleanliness, and cleanliness is part of our faith. It is said to be half of faith. So Islam really does stress on this aspect of cleanliness, and the authorities now, scientific authorities now, are agreed upon this fact that circumcision and removal of the foreskin is something that promotes cleanliness and prevents diseases and this is the basis for promoting uh, circumcision. Mm -hmm. But the questioner wants to know why, if it was the case, then that would also be the case with your fingernails, as I've right. said, That's with right. your hairs, uh, which are, have to be removed as well. Why were they not, um, not to be, the nails would not grow, or the hairs mm -hmm. under right. your armpits would not grow, so that you would maintain that cleanliness. Mm -hmm. However, Allah is as full of wisdom and infinite wisdom mm -hmm. as, as we know. And everything has a purpose in life and whatever he has created, he has created with that in mind. And uh, the concept of the foreskin within the womb and during the delivery of the child is something that also is recognized that it's a protection. The, uh, the glands is the part of the, uh, of the penis that is protected by the foreskin. Mm. And it is a very sensitive part of the skin and if the foreskin was not present there during in, in the womb mm. and during the delivery of the child then there would be danger mm. that some damage could occur to a very sensitive part which also could be harmful to the child either within the womb or while the delivery is being undertaken. So in order to protect that Allah the Almighty has given this protective covering for that period of time and therefore once that period of danger is over, the child has been born, then he has commanded that the circumcision should take place that since that danger is no longer there and, and that is it. Yes, it is a painful process to go through but the benefits far outweigh the few days of, uh, of uh, I should say misery but few days of discomfort that the child may fear. But at a very young age you know the child's uh, systems of recovery and are very quick and therefore that is why it's done early on in life and therefore that is the reasoning behind why Allah has left that until after the delivery of the child has, has taken place. Jazakumullah Dr. Saab and also to Azhar Hanif Saab of course and my thanks go to Bakar uh, Saab for your question. Um, we're going to move to Europe for our next question which comes from uh, Rafqatullah in France. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you your question it's a question gentlemen we've dealt with before as well so but it's one which comes up before we at the Amdi Muslim community hold all scriptures of all religions at their inception um, to be revealed from the same single source which is God Almighty and as such they were uncorrupted but what's happened over time as we've said before as well is that certain texts certain interpretations have been removed from their original text. The, what we're being asked here is that if the scriptures prior to the Holy Quran are perceived as being corrupted, why then are Muslims instructed to refer to them as a The um, misunderstanding uh, within this question is that the Quran 
is saying that we rely upon these, these previous scriptures to justify mm -hmm. our own faith somehow. And since those scriptures are corrupted, how is it possible to justify our faith through these scriptures? And the Quran is, called, is being called mustaddaq, that it, is, it it's, it's, uh, confirms, affirms the revelations that are prior to it. But in fact, what it, it does is gives us a continuity through all the religious scriptures. And we say they came from the same source. Mm -hmm. We never say that the source was never corrupted after, uh, the, the scripture was never corrupted after it was received by that source, which is God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty. And in fact, the opposite is said throughout the Quran. And there are many warnings in the Quran, such as it speaks about those who write the book. Woe to those. Woe to those who write the, the Quran or write the scriptures with their own hands. They will try to devise some portions of scripture and claim this came from the Almighty when in fact it did not. So it's condemning, in fact, the old scriptures as having been written, interpolated, extrapolated, all these things were going on. But within still that body of, of scripture, there are glimpses of, of truth. So one of the beauties of Quran is it never says we have a complete monopoly on truth. It has acknowledged that there were truths in the old scriptures and some of them still exist, which allude to the next coming prophet. For instance, in the case of Hazrat Isa, Jesus Christ, uh, in the Quran it mentions that he was musaddiq ma bayna yadayhi min al-Torah. That he also, same thing, he is fulfilling what was before him in the Torah. Mm -hmm. And yet, people claim he brought a gospel, the Injil, and this gospel was something new. It, he says, I have not brought anything new, I'm just coming to fulfill what was prior to me in the Old Testament. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad yes. is in fact saying the same thing, that I'm come in fulfillment of the prophecies of the earlier prophets, and this is how you recognize me. So it gives them all a link to two sources. One, to the main source, that we all believe scripture came from God and it's universal. We don't believe that the Holy Quran was written by the Prophet Muhammad on his own or by any other source, sallallahu and we don't believe it came from some separate God, it came from the same God. And then number two, the link to all the prophets, so that if he's claiming to be a universal message, messenger, where's the proof that the other messengers who have come before him told their people to look for this person who's to come? it is still present in their scriptures, and this is what links it up, not just in the Old Testament, they're from the, the Vedas and other world scriptures, you'll see glimpses, some of them a bit distorted, some of them a bit, uh, you know, changed in wording, but you see glimpses, clear glimpses that it refers to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which leads them into the universal truth that they were all supposed to accept when he were to appear. And to me, this is the reason why the Quran refers to it and we as Muslims shouldn't be averse to reading the world scripture because it somehow also it will uh, validate and affirm our own faith that we will see those things, we'll see them in the Quran. The Quran is also called the book that is comprehensively containing all of the truth, universal truth that has ever been there. So you begin to see those truths as well that were in the prior scriptures and they link up with the, the verse of Quran that says this is Qutbun uh, Qayyimah. This is not just a book, it is kutub, which in Arabic means it is scriptures or books. Mm -hmm. All these books are present. So someone will say, well, show, show me where my book is in here. And I can show them to the surprise of many Christians that it speaks about Mary. 
It speaks about Jesus. It speaks about all the Old Testament prophets. And they're surprised to know that. Many times Christians don't realize. The Quran speaks about those prophets that they, they believe in and those holy people that they, they also venerate. So this is where the Quran really is a remarkable book, incomparable to other scriptures in the world at this time. And as you said, it's protected as it was from its uh, original time. Jazakumullah. As I saw, my thanks also to Rafkatullah for the question. Our next question comes from Tahseen Qureshi in Canada. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for your question. Um, Dr. Saab, Tahseen's referring to something which is not just in the Muslim world, but it's something which has come under the attention and scrutiny ar around the globe. And this is the whole issue that, um, of apostasy in Islam. That someone, when someone is a Muslim and becomes or changes to another faith or in, indeed becomes a non-believer altogether, that there are some countries around the world, um, which is true. And indeed, there's many within the Muslim community who hold this view that apostasy is punishable by death. Um, simple question, what's the Amdiya Muslim community's view on that? Is apostasy punishable by death under Islam? Very simple answer. No, it isn't. And our basis for that is obviously from the scripture, the holy book, the word of God that we have been referring to. Mm. Quite categorically, we read in the Holy Quran a principle mm. which is applicable in life. Allah says, La There is no compulsion in religion. And the religion of Islam certainly holds this to be true on a practical basis. Mm -hmm. No one has the right to force me to become a Muslim and no one has the right to force me to leave Islam. So it works both ways. So that is the principle that Islam talks about. But uh, the, the other thing that we know is that uh, when one, wish, one leaves Islam, and this was happening during the lifetime of the Holy Prophet we do not find a single example that he was punished by the Holy Prophet as a hadood crime in, in any instance. People try to relate instances, but what they don't realize is that that was not for being, uh, having left the pale of Islam at that time. So that is quite categorical. The Holy Quran speaks of it. In the lifetime of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, we find no instance. You know, there's a verse of the Holy Quran, and I think I should refer to that. It is from Surah Al-Nisa, verse 138. This is, this is what Allah says. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا ثُمَّ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا ثُمَّ ازْدَادُوا كُفْرًا يَكُنِ اللَّهُ لِيَغْفِرَ لَهُمْ وَلَا لِيَحْدِيَهُمْ سَبِيلًا Allah says, those who believe, then disbelieve, and then believe, and then disbelieve, and then increase in disbelief. Allah will never forgive them, nor will he guide them to the right way. So I think this is quite categoric in, the, in that sense, that Allah is talking not of, bless, uh, of uh, apostasy just on one step, but it's uh, several steps. And at the end of that, Allah says that they will continue in their disbelief further and further away. And what will be the outcome of that? That they will never be forgiven by Allah. That is the right of Allah, that he will not forgive them in this life or in the hereafter. So that quite categorically should be sufficient evidence for any Muslim, any Muslim government around the world that this is the basis of the Sharia law, this is the basis of the Holy Quran, and no one can, excuse me, can uh, meet death 
because of being an apostate in that respect. Mm. So Muslims around the world need to go back to the origins of Islam and see what the Holy Prophet ﷺ, the law he brought and how he practiced it is that there is no element of doubt left in that aspect at all. There's a universal element here. Mm -hmm. The universal element here is that even nowadays this, this problem comes up. Mm -hmm. I recall a, a few years ago when we were engaged in this war of terror and Afghanistan was the, the target at that point. And, and one of the, the military expeditions, they discovered an American living in Afghanistan. And they brought him back to the U.S. soil as a person who was captured fighting with the Taliban against the U.S. forces. Mm -hmm. And when he came back, they realized he had converted to Islam mm -hmm. and was fighting alongside as a Muslim soldier, so to speak, for the Taliban soldier, let's, let's call it, let's leave Islam out of it. Mm -hmm. Yet, the penalty they were considering is he should be imprisoned or even put to death for treason. No one spoke about the fact that he became apostate from Christianity, which was his faith of, of, of mm -hmm. birth, to accept the, the faith of, of uh, Islam. Yet that would have been the same condition of someone in the days of the Holy Prophet Muhammad as Dr. Saab talked about, who became an apostate from Islam and went to the to any side, maybe, or no side, and then became a combatant against the state. Mm -hmm. That would have been either the enemy of the state, as this person was, or it would have been treason if he was still claiming to be part of the state. Both cases, which is a very serious crime and has serious penalties. And in this case, again, there was no talk about mm -hmm. the fact that this American Taliban, who was a Muslim, is being punished because he apostated from Christianity. Mm -hmm. Whereas apostasy, in, in fact, historically shows this came from the era when Christians were claiming people to be heretics and apostates from leaving Christianity. It really was never part of the Islamic uh, body politic. In fact, you know, there's no word in Quran that speaks that says you're an apostate. It says you have gone back from your religion, which, as Dr. Sam says, everyone has the right to do. You can always leave anything and return back and revert back to whatever you want to do. But apostasy says the body itself a, a religious body or a political body claims you are apostate. This is categorically rejected in Islam. There's no history of that ever happening in the days of the Holy Prophet Muhammad or the righteous caliphs after, after that or even up to now. No one has been given that authority according to the Quran to declare someone else apostate. I can say what I believe or I, I don't believe in, but no one can tell me that this is your belief, so now we claim you to be a renegade of our faith and you should be punished for that. This is a clear difference that was part of the Christianity and drove people out of Europe into many parts of the world, including America, because they were being declared apostates and were being punished in very uh, you know, gruesome and, and inhumane ways. So to, to leave that, you know, the punishment and that declaration, they left the shores of, of Europe and came to other okay. countries, including America. That never happened in Islam. Just a final point on this, though, for either of you on this. Yet, what we do see, I mean, drawing on the example, as I said, you just gave of this American who joined the Taliban and then fought on the side of the Taliban against um, both the US and indeed British forces that were there, that he was tried under the laws for betrayals to one's country and nation rather than faith. Yet the issue of faith, the issue of leaving one's faith, the issue of persecution of faith, predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly, we see prevalent across the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. And with, I mean, it's 
how come it's taken such sort of deep root into, at times, into the constitutions of country? Mm. Well, I, I think perhaps Dr. Saab will also say, because in, in the history of, of Pakistan and, and other countries that were formed on the basis of being Muslim, it's very sad to note that within these nations where people should understand the history, you have this voice being raised that the apostate should be, you know, uh, give, given the death penalty and things of this nature. Whereas, as he said, that never happened in the history of Islam. Mm. So over the course of the entire history of Islam, somehow there was a shift in the thinking of the current and medieval scholars of Islam to either adopt what was being kind of promoted and practiced in the Christian world and other parts of the world, or to somehow in a political scheme come up with this ideology and link it with verses of Quran or with traditions, of, uh, historical traditions that really are, are being uh, f faulty or related to the people. So this is what has happened and the result of it is now is, as, as we know, there are parts of the Muslim world where they declare the punishment for apostasy is death. Yeah, yeah. And it's been, it's been going on and it could be stoning, it could be whatever it is, but this has become a tradition unfortunately which has crept into Islam over the course of centuries but was not there in its uh, early days during the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad or the early righteous caliphs or even in the first few golden centuries of Islam. We didn't see this as the practice of Muslims to condemn someone for rejecting faith and then to give them the death penalty if they do so. Yeah, I suppose in some parts of the, of the world, religion has become a very potent tool for people in power. Mm -hmm. And we find that uh, in, in perhaps in many countries where illiteracy is very high, it is that tool that is being used, uh, you know, as a form of justifying the, the actions of the government which are mm -hmm. totally un-Islamic to that degree. So it is trying to have a, a sort of a link to the masses through the tool and through the power of religion, knowing that these people are a religious community in essence, and they, f they, they follow a religion and its practices to a very high degree with, without even thinking about the actual spirit behind the religion of Islam. And this is what we have seen as in the 1400 years since the Holy Prophet Wasallam, and this was predicted by, after all, by the Holy Prophet Wasallam, of how Muslims would actually go away from the truth of Islam and from the origin of Islam, and all these issues would be encountered by these societies. And that has been the reason for the, issue, the problems having been encountered and the religion having been used as a very forceful tool in that respect. Mm -hmm. So that is, and now they have totally forgotten the basis of their faith, so that uh, the, whatever is being done in these countries is totally un-Islamic, but that tool is never been, has never gone away and it still continues to be used in those parts of the world. And a practical example of that, is I suppose what we saw in Afghanistan with the Taliban on issues of adultery, for example, how they prove that and there's, you know, specific, they, you know, you see almost public stoning of people they perceive have committed crimes of adultery and there's, you know, it's, you see these circles of public watching these alleged, you know, adulterers being stoned to death. That is another example of an un-Islamic act having been mentioned in the Holy Quran, its punishment having been mentioned in the Holy Quran and the punishment is not death. You know, that has been another misconception that as you have said in Afghanistan and other parts of the world has been erroneously taken as, as putting them to death. The Quran says 
you should marry the adulterer to the adulteress. Now, if you have punished the adulterer by sending, uh, killing him, then there is no question of him marrying as, as the Quran speaks of. And the, the punishment of the lashes is mentioned in the Holy Quran, and that is the punishment that is the basis of uh, adultery in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. So that is just another example, as you say, of another uh, un-Islamic uh, crime being punished in the wrong, wrong manner in these countries. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Nassim uh, for the question. Um, moving on, if I may, to our next question. It's, we're staying in North America. comes from Shajil Tahir. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for your kind comments about faith matters. He's addressing, gentlemen, a question which everyone's facing at the moment. We live in a world, increasingly here in, in Britain, it's a very good example, where the population is perceived as increasingly aging. And there's a huge concern which is raised, as uh, Shadil writes, by both individuals, but also for governments about how to deal with an aging population. You know, whether you're talking about pension funding, whether you're talking about facilities for the elderly. and his uh, genuine question is that as society evolves, what's the sort of Islamic perspective on this? I mean, what kind of society should exist? What kind of facilities should exist? And how should care for the elderly be monitored? Indeed, you know, as I said, you know, the, the Holy Quran is quite specific when it comes to one's personal obligations towards mm -hmm. elderly parents, that you shouldn't even seek to raise your own voice in That's response, right. even if they are perhaps in your own mind or objectively speaking being challenged challenging towards you. That's right, that's right. I mean, there are, there are the, the human cycle, if we look at the cycle of, of birth to death, is one where Quran says specifically, we go from, uh, we go from weakness to strength, back to, back to weakness. Is, everyone knows this. If, if the human society didn't take care of that child when it's born, we know for one or two reasons it will die. One, from loneliness, or two, from lack of care. Mm -hmm. It cannot take care of it. It's dependent totally on those around them. And this is something which, again, through the course of life, we become strong enough to stand on our own feet, take care of our own needs, and provide for everything that is, is, is required. But then, if we live long enough, we revert, as the Quran says, right back to that state of weakness, when you're just as dependent as you were when you first started out. And the, the, the life cycle is so amazing. Mm -hmm. It's like on these two polar ends, you see this, this beautiful life trans, you know, transferring before your eyes back into this weakness. And then it's, it's, it's psychologically so critical mm -hmm. because you had the strength, but now you know this weakness is, is a point where you're dependent and you, you're helpless and society casts you aside. I mean, how, how cruel can that be? Because now the child, you say, we talked about earlier with the circumcision, where the child is so young and his consciousness isn't fully developed that you can take that knife and, and begin to cut off pieces of the flesh and they won't, won't object. But if you do that to a 16, 20 year old boy, he's gonna fight you. You know, he's gonna feel, he's gonna feel the strength that you know, I, I, this, I feel pain, this is uncomfortable, I'm not doing this. And the point of the elderly is, psychologically they know it's a state no one wants to be in, mm -hmm. where they're completely abandoned and alone it creates such a conflict in their minds that many elderly people who say after the age of 80 commit suicide again. This is when the, the, the spike of suicide rises for the people when they're abandoned like this. And I, I've, I've known my own relatives who worked in the elderly homes. The, the accounts they give me 
of those who sit day and night in those rooms all alone, no phone call, no letter, no nothing coming to them. It's such a miserable state to be in. You, you would not ever wish to be in such a, an abandoned, lonely state at the end of your years when you should have gained in the course of life connections and family and friends mm -hmm. to take care of you. Mm -hmm. So Islam says, no, it's not fair. Just as when we were weak when, at, at birth and our mothers came, our families came to nurture us and help us, we must play the same role as those people who nurtured us get older. <clears throat> this is a primary duty in Islam, and as you mentioned, it's in the Quran that you must always be kind and considerate to parents, especially when they get older, because they're not just increasing in age, they're increasing in dependency upon us and losing the capacity to even sometimes maintain their composure and, and, and control their tongue. It's like a, a child does, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a difficult age and they get it's called cranky and grumpy and all these, we use these things, but it's nothing but human nature reverting back to the early stage. And uh, the, the Islamic society demands us to keep them within our, in our presence, in our homes. It's a blessing, the messenger said, to his companions, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He said, oh, messenger, what do you mean? Who is your wailing as oh, is something wrong? He said, that person whose parents becomes old and they don't earn the heaven, in other words, they don't earn God's pleasure by serving them. What a miserable and wretched soul he's saying that is. What an unfortunate person that is. What a grand opportunity to repay back a favor, which really we can't even repay. One companion was complaining to the messenger about his older mother that she's bitter now and it's difficult to take care of her and you know, and he said to them, don't complain about your mother. You didn't, you don't realize what she did when you were born to bear you for all those years. Still he began to complain. He said, oh no, I've done this for her and done that for her. He said, no, no, you cannot repay her for the years when you were a child and she looked after you when you were sick and weak. Again, he began to complain. And then he said, you know, I've even carried her around the, the, the holy house of God on my shoulders to perform the, the, the hajj. He said, even then you haven't fulfilled the right that your mother, you owe to your mother from all that she suffered for you in your life. And yet in this society, they're like, you know, throw, throw cast away, away, cast away. It's unbelievable how we can do it. Right? Well, I mean, there is a bad element. And, and I think culturally and or religiously, I think it's very clear um, in terms of how elders of society, and indeed sometimes they say a, a civilized society is truly judged by how both children and the elderly are treated. And putting it into a practical context now, the, uh, the Islamic base is very clear, um, as Azza Saab has so comprehensively illustrated, Dr. Saab. But practically speaking, you know, if, you, if we compare like for like, and one was objective about it, taking a stance back, the provision for the elderly in terms of services and communities and provisions, we often find that countries such as the United States, countries such as the United Kingdom, countries within the European Union, the focus on that, the attention given to that, notwithstanding the issues that, you know, and one could have a totally separate debate about provisions within the house, vis-a-vis -vis care homes and how, how that, but in terms of the provisions made or the facilities made available, the very principles, some of which, as Asab alluded to, are prevalent in the practices of countries that aren't. Muslim who aren't Islamic because they make such heavy provisions for the elderly. Yes, we see that in, in, in these countries that the state does take over the role and the responsibility 
that primarily Islam has laid down upon the family. However, this, uh, th this is the beauty of the state or the governments in these parts of the world, that they are aware of the situation for whatever reason that there are single or elderly people who are not able to look after themselves, whether they be in their own homes or whether they have to be then moved to areas where they can be better looked after. But the state does fund these heavily and they do have, they, they are catered to a very great degree so that they are looked after in their golden years. These are the golden years and these are the years that they should be enjoying. So if the responsibility as I said, is primarily that of the family, and Islam lays great emphasis upon this. If that is missing for whatever reason in these countries, then the state has taken over that role and that responsibility, and the provisions are there, and, and they are very commendable as far as that is concerned. So this, this is a, a very organized form of help that is found out there, and the authorities are always prepared and willing to actually give the help to whoever uh, asks of these social services and the elderly care and so on is on a very high footing in these countries. Uh, but in Islamic countries, in a, in a truly Islamic society as such, as Azasab has said, it, and looking back from the examples that he has given of the Holy Prophet this falls upon the family as, as, as such. In terms of primary responsibility. In, in terms of yeah. primary, in terms of primary care, mm -hmm. right. uh, and uh, the Holy Quran reminds us that you should not only give them every, every lower the wing of humility mm -hmm. towards your parents, mm -hmm. but pray for them. This is this is something that Islam actually tells us to do over and over again. Have mercy on them because because they nurtured me when I was young. So th this is what Islam endorses upon that aspect. Yeah. But here living in the West, we have also a responsibility in that respect that we have to educate uh, our, our friends and, and people around us in the communities that we live in, that this is the role of the family as such. And this is what Islam teaches. The Islamic teachings have to be portrayed mm -hmm. deeply to people around so that we, they are also able to understand where we are coming from. I, I remember uh, a, a while back uh, when we used to visit our mother in hospital and there used to be other elderly women there having undergone operations and mum would say, these people have not been visited, now don't you sit with me, mm. but go and sit with them and spend some time with them mm. because day after day after day, nobody yeah. comes and visits them. Mm. So this is our responsibility as a humanitarian act that we have to actually go out and, and present ourselves, present the teachings of Islam and actually make a practical example of what Islam teaches us in that, in right. that respect. Right. You know, especially because in this society there are, there are people who are very much uh, conscious of these problems mm. and willing to step forward and, and, and give take, us, yeah. take, take responsibility mm -hmm. and, and insist in it. Yeah. But as, as, as Dr. Saab says, you know, we should always remind them of primary duties you know, and, and if you say it in Muslim countries, you don't see it because in Muslim countries, they are still, no matter how far they've yeah. gone away from Islam, they have maintained this sense of a family, a nuclear family, and that the parents, as old as they get, are part of that to the last breath of life. So you, it's intergenerational. It's intergenerational, yeah. and there's a beautiful mm -hmm. connection. And, and you, you see that respect in this society where the families begin to disintegrate, now government has to step in. So they are playing a, a, a wonderful mm -hmm. social role, but at the same time, they're also exacerbating the problem by not giving the sense of the people 
to maintain these connections and take care of those those who are elderly. So it's kind of a, a strict uh, catch-22, you know, you, you yeah. get both sides of it. And I think for any parent with young children or, you know, reflecting towards their elderly parents, I think there was once, uh, you know, I remember someone talking about this very issue and they said, you know, the best that's a reminder you can give them is that where their parents are today, they will be there tomorrow, and the way they treat their elders will be reflective of the treatment of their children towards them. Gentlemen, as ever, thank you very much, and my thanks also to Shajil Saab for his uh, question. We're going to go to our next questioner, which comes, and it's Shakil Akhtar. Um, Assalamu alaikum, Shakil Saab, thank you for your question. Um, he's referring to the issue of uh, suicide. Um, and something which is obviously prohibited by, uh, on principle in Islam, Dr. Saab, but he's asking about what happens to the soul of that person. Someone has got to that level, and sometimes it's, you know, the situation they find themselves in is desperate, and it is, you know, they commit this act. Um, what happens to their actual soul? I mean, if it's something that Islam doesn't allow for, is well, their soul, I mean, he, he's written here also that he's been told by some uh, other Muslim friends of his, not from the Andhya community, but wider, that the soul just rambles around the earth, for example. Well, the, the aspect of life is important to consider in this question as well, because, as you have rightly said, that uh, life is sacrosanct. It is not in the control of the person himself. This, the, our life is in the hands of Allah, and he has the ability to end it whenever he wishes or whenever he wills or when, whenever he has decreed. So in essence, as far as that is concerned, that is our primary concern, that life has to be preserved at all costs. And our own life in that respect is something that has to be preserved as, as, as far as that is concerned. However, maybe for whatever reason, pressures or whatever, uh, people uh, do take their own lives and we discussed how past 80 the suicide rates do go up, but that is not something that is permitted in Islam. Mm. The soul actually is detaches from the body at the time of death, so that, that is something that happens in, in all cases. And it enters into a state which is called barzukh, and the soul then passes through a transformation into until the time when the day of judgment would be so that this process continues. As far as a person who has committed suicide is concerned, Allah says that he will no, never forgive this person for this act that he has mm -hmm. undertaken. So the soul perhaps is detached at that time from the body and whether it continues to ramble or whether it continues to go to barzukh and continues to be reformed in a certain way is something that Allah may continue to do in, in that respect. But as far as it rambling around and not having peace uh, as such, that might be a, a, a connotation contrary to the spirit of Islam in that respect. Mm. There's, a, there's a hadith um, about a person who commits suicide, which perhaps was used to, to convey this sense of a person who's a wandering soul. Because as Dr. Sab says, Allah says, that, that soul is not forgiven and it's sent to a, a, a eternal type of, uh, you know, lengthy type of punishment mm -hmm. in the next life. And this hadith, it mentions very clearly, uh, related by Hazrat Abu Huraira, may Allah be pleased with him, that the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallam, said, the person who kills himself with a, a steel weapon would be sent to the hellfire and would have that weapon in his hand 
and will be thrusting it into his stomach forever and ever, I mean for a long time. And he who drank poison and killed himself would sip that in the fire of hell where he be doomed there forever and ever. And he who killed himself by falling from the top of a mountain would constantly be falling in the fire of, of hell. So again, it gives a sense that when someone commits this kind of act, mm -hmm. his soul is undergoing this ongoing process of uh, some type of, uh, you can say, accountability for that, that, that grievous act. Mm -hmm. And Allah holds him accountable. Here it says forever and ever, but we know that hell isn't forever. It means that it's for a very lengthy time unless Allah has mercy and, and understands the circumstances, as Dr. Saab says. So maybe someone reads this hadith and thinks, oh, this person is not heading to the next life, mm -hmm. is stuck in that barzakh, is roaming the earth, the soul is, you know, they come up with so many strange mm -hmm. concepts that his, his soul is, is still not at peace and, and is trying to get back in the grave or whatever it is. But this is all he talked about. And to give the gravity of this kind of act into the minds of the Muslim believers that we should never do this, this and take our, our life. But short of that, nothing else we can, we can see mm -hmm. would justify such a concept in, in Islam. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to uh, Shaquille Akhtar for the question. Um, uh, our next question comes from Asma in Canada. Um, Asma is referring, uh, Dr. Saab, to the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, <laughs> Prophet Muhammad <laughs> and also a time when he was approached to be almost a custodian of society by not Muslims, his followers, but by other communities, the Jewish community being a prime example of this. Um, this was the time of the Medina Charter and indeed a very pluralistic society and community was created where rights were protected. Um, what Asma is actually asking is what lessons can be learned from that particular experience to applying it in the modern context, particularly in relation to Muslim communities' relations or the Muslim community's relations with people of other faith and indeed those of no faith. Mm. Yeah, this relates to uh, very early on after the migration of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu from uh, Makkah to Medina. And if you look at the society of Medina, oh, we should call it Yathrib at that time because that is what uh, Medina was. Mm. That, that was a society which was a warring society. Um, tribal wars were something that were very common and any small dispute would actually escalate into a war and, and this is how they decided their matters. But when they heard about what was happening in Mecca and that there was a, a, a person, a prophet who had been sent who was reforming society and was teaching them peace and coexistence, there were some people who went from Yathrib to see the prophet in Mecca and having talked with him and, and, and have, having accepted him, then they obviously wanted him to come to Medina to live amongst them and to try to create a society which was peaceful in every nature and be a transformation from what the society that they were living in. It is said that at that time there were probably a hundred thousand inhabitants of Yathrib which became to be known as Medina at that time. And the Muslims were a small minority at that time, perhaps 15% or so, and 45% and were sort of uh, non-Muslim non Arabs and 40% were, were Jews at that time. Mm -hmm. So these were the rough proportions. And at that time, obviously, they, uh, they asked the Holy Prophet <coughs> to be their leader, to be their guide in, in every respect. And this was accepted by all the communities at that time. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine how his task must have been difficult at that time, right. having a society which was uh, multi-religious and, 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 and multi-ethnic in that respect. 
mm. how to <coughs> make them into one cohesive body and how life would be in, in existence. So he wrote the uh, charter of Medina, he drafted that, which was drafted, you know, six centuries before the Magna Carta is talked about. Uh, and that also shows the beauty of what was in that, in that charter at that time. But what was the overriding principles? The overriding principles were that he wanted to create a society in which people of different religions would respect each other's religions and not make these an issues for conflict as, as far as that was concerned. So there was equality in that respect in the society. Peace and harmony should be maintained and there should be no question of uh, one religion being superseded by another religion and the laws of one religion being thrust upon another religion. So in that respect it was uh, an in encompassing society that they would actually accept and uh, come to look at the beauties of the other society rather than look at the differences in that society. So he, he brought these people together under that banner. The charter is a long charter consisting of I think perhaps 40, 40 odd aspects of it were and all of these were for mutual consultation, cooperation in all forms of society and coming into the aid of each other's society if they were attacked or if they were at war with, with other outside societies. So that was the task that was before him and I think history now tells us as to how successful that charter was and he was able to bring these different society, uh, people of different uh, backgrounds under the cohesion of one leader at that time. Mm -hmm. So that is what Muslim communities today have to recognize and see how the Holy Prophet was able to accomplish that in that respect. Zakamullah, Dr. Zaid Saab. Uh, as a sub, stretching this question further as well, um, this question came from us in Canada, but Madhya Khan writes to us from Germany as well. And it sort of links in quite nicely with the question, because she's also talking about the current day, uh, the current age we live in, which is multi-religious, multi-ethnic, mm -hmm. you know, and these societies sometimes result in conflicts, problems, be it of race, culture, community, faith, mm -hmm. and we see them increasingly. You could be talking about countries in the Islamic world, you could be talking of countries in the Western mm -hmm. field. Yet, taking the points Dr. Sabin's made so eloquently about the principles which were laid down in that charter, what kind of application is there today or should there be from an Islamic perspective in resolving some of these challenges and problems and clashes that we have? Yes, well, if we believe, and we do believe, that the Holy Prophet Muhammad was sent as a messenger to all mankind, as a source of compassion and mercy from God to uplift all mankind, to bring them out of eras of, of darkness, and this darkness could be what you're referring to, the conflicts, the confusion, the, the, the lack of cohesion in the societies which had existed in his time and still continue to this day. What was the message that he brought that created that unity and harmony even in this multi-ethnic, multi-religious society? And Dr. Saab has beautifully alluded to many of those principles which today we still honor and recognize in the charters, the UN charters, the, 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 yeah. the world charters, which want nations of the world to recognize as fundamental rights. Mm -hmm fundamental human rights. So he spoke really about fundamental human right. And this was his beauty as a leader. He recognized, I, I would say, in the 13 years of persecution, opposition by the, the Meccans, how valuable these rights were. He was denied the right to profess and practice a religion. 
and at one point he was almost denied the right to even live. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were boycotted for three years and they were, they were attempted to be starved to death in a valley. So every amenity of life was, was taken from them. This was a man who had to recognize the value of all these things and when he became a person of power, he didn't come in belligerently that it now it's, it's us against you and we're, we're the, I'm recognized as the leader, so it's our, our way or no way and you, mm -hmm. you have to go out. No, he became inclusive and he fought for everyone's right, which, which is really a, a confederation of the states at that time. The different tribes, the different faith groups were all brought together on one platform and said, here's the equality amongst us. Here's the, here's the common brotherhood amongst us. We'll all fight together for these things. Protection of the state, the equal distribution of the goods within the society, the right for everyone to, to openly have a freedom of conscience, the protection, the development of a city together, all these different things, the defense of, against the common enemies, et cetera. This is what every state is now, every nation is now being framed upon, you know, as, as their constitutions or, or, or the ways they will move forward. The most critical within this, however, is, is the issue of religion. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen the religions create civilization societies within themselves and can lead to the, the, the conflict if one is not careful. So right from the beginning, he established this idea that we have a right to exist within our religion and so do you. And even when a dispute would come up, he would acknowledge the fact that we will allow you to judge based on what is in your body, what is in your confederacy, so to speak. It's like in the US, we, we now joke, we're no longer the United States of America. United States. United Nations of America. This, it's, a, it's a place where so many people have poured in, and yet at the same time, you, you, you figure out how do they create this unity? We're no longer one people in terms of an ethnic group. We're no longer one people in terms of a lingual group or, or a religious group. There's so many people, but the confederacy is created under those principles that link us, equality, justice, you know, liberty for all, the right to, to happiness and life and all these things. This is what he did in that charter as well. And I think it still translates today and it's still lacking in many countries, Muslim and non-Muslim alike. And, excuse me, and this is where the, the kind of the, the revolution needs to be done in terms of the Muslims in the world, not, not trying to enforce Sharia, but trying to educate people about these human values and principles which he himself championed during his, his day and age. Zakunla, as I said, and uh, as you rightly said, picking up on that point though of education as well, Dr. Saab, I mean, education is key. It, it, barriers of ignorance, be they on race or religion, as Azasab alluded to as well. You know, in the United States, I always quote in one thing it did very well um, in history was about uniting different ethnicities and communities by saying you could be African-American, you could be Arab-American or whatever. Now, whether these, and uh, I'm sure here from Azasab as to whether they were mere labels, or people genuinely believe that, that yes, I could be Muslim, I could be of African heritage, but you know what, I'm passionate about my country. And there's my generation, Dr. Saab came here as a young boy, I was born and bred in this country, that you have these labels put to you, that you can be Muslim, you can be of, in my case, of Pakistani Indian heritage or whatever, but you're passionate about service to your country and community and the country that you belong to and which is your home, which is Britain in my case. I mean. That comes from a very early age, doesn't it? From education at schools, you know, that spirit of patriotism and loyalty to nation. Without it 
being perceived as a conflict towards one's other na uh, other natural identifiers you have. Yes, yes. Just let the World Cup start, uh, is it this year? It is indeed <laughs> in and, Brazil. And, and you, you'll uh, see in our nation that you know there'll be a love for the U.S. team to go forward, but then there'll be all these other groups saying, you know, I want this team of my nation where I came from also to go forward. And yet that doesn't create any kind of conflict. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, you say, harmony and diversity. The strength in that diversity is amazing. And I think this is what the messenger also recognized. This is the strength in the human family. And as the Quran says, to recognize the, the value of the other person that they bring to the human value instead of seeing that person as some, some kind of enemy or threat to yourself and your identity. It enhances your identity. And, and this is what we're still learning as we go forward. It's, it's, it's not perfect by any means. It's not a perfect union, I think, in America or most countries where you have this kind of, kind of a situation. But the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he, he showed us the model. Mm -hmm. And even in his day, it wasn't a perfect union. There were still tensions sometimes amongst the different parties, and that led later on to some conflicts itself. But they all initially agreed that this, this is the best way to, to try to create that, that unity and harmony amongst us. And, and unfortunately, nowadays you see places, I won't mention the countries, but they're passing edicts that there should be no churches built in our kingdoms. Or they, they go around saying that those who are of this particular faith, they're this descendants of the apes and the swines, and again creating these, these kind of revolutions within their own nations instead of creating this you know, convergence in nations, creating divergence in, in differences. And this is not what the messenger did. He would stand up for the Jew going by when he, he would pass, and the, and the commander would say, but, but he's a Jew. He said, but he's a human as well. So the common denominator was he's a human being. Don't think about faith first, think about humanity first. And these wonderful principles we keep losing sight of in the Muslim world, but the other parts of the world also need to learn from the messenger in, 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 this, in this sense. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.